You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Open your Bible if you haven't yet uh, to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 127 this morning. That's just five verses long, which we'll read all of them here in a moment. But we're really going to focus on the first two verses, even from this psalm. And uh, I was thinking of, uh, we, I knew we were going to be showing this video about uh, Heidi and, and her work as a mother. And uh, it made me think about when I was a kid. And I have some fairly fond memories. Uh, I can't remember when I was a baby. But even as an older child, uh, I have fond memories of my mom singing lullabies to me. Like if I was anxious or afraid, and it wasn't necessarily the baby lullabies, but she would sing these songs to me as an older child that I could still sing, but I, I'll spare you that. Uh, but that have lodged in my memory and my heart that, that she would sing to me to try to help me rest, uh, to try to help me fall asleep if I was afraid, uh, to, to if I was just sugared up or whatever. She would try to, to sing to me uh, to get me to sleep, and it would often work. And I have fond memories of that, and maybe many of you do as well, of either being the recipient and hearer of those or the singer of those yourself with different children in your life. And I was thinking that our struggle with or against sleep starts when we're really little, doesn't it? Uh, You think of even babies, uh, that when we lay them down to sleep, most of them do it kicking and screaming, quite literally. Uh, That when we lay them down to sleep, they don't want to go to sleep, and they're not even conscious of it, but they're fighting against sleep. And then you think of toddlers who, like I mentioned, maybe get sugared up. Uh, They had too much cake or ice cream or candy or whatever, and and they just physically are are not able to rest. It's it's challenging to them to actually stay in their bed and actually fall asleep. As we become older, into our older childhood years, and this carries into adulthood, we might be anxious as we lay down and we're still and we're just left with our thoughts. We might be afraid of something. Uh, whether it's the dark when we're a young kid or afraid of what's coming tomorrow or what's on the horizon if we're an adult. Uh, we, we struggle with or against sleep from a very young age and to different degrees. And th- this isn't something even as adults, if we're adults in the room, that we uh, necessarily grow out of. Uh, we, we press back against sleep. We struggle to find it. We struggle to rest physically. We struggle to rest, but even mentally, emotionally, spiritually, we struggle to find a place of rest. We're going to see in Psalm 127, particularly these first two verses, uh, I would call this in a poetic way a lullaby of sorts from God to us. Like it's things that he would want to speak to us or sing to us as we struggle to rest or as we sometimes don't even want to rest and we're pushing it back. These would be words that the Lord would say to us and maybe even sing to us. It is a a psalm after all that he would sing to our hearts, sing to our minds to teach us to rest, to rest physically, to rest spiritually. And uh, we're going to read in just a moment all five verses of this. And this is a psalm I, was, I want to have in my heart, in my soul, in my mind as a young parent. And it's, anytime we write cards to, to people in the church who have a new baby, I always sign my name and then write Psalm 127 after it because I want them to read it. I want them to get it in their heart. I want them to get it in their soul. And I hope that the Lord does that for all of us today in this psalm because it has much to teach us about rest. And so if you look at Psalm 127, if you're, if you're there, if you look at the start of it, just a quick note before we read this, 
Yours probably has an inscription at the top that says something like a song of ascents or of degrees, you might say. And then it says of Solomon. And so just a note before we read this, there was several of these psalms that got lumped together. Uh, there's Psalms 120 to Psalm 134. If you look at all of those, they all start that same way, a song of ascents. And what we believe is that these were songs that God's people, the Jewish people, would sing together as they would literally physically go up elevation-wise, as they would ascend to Jerusalem for different festivals, for different gatherings of God's people there. These were songs that they would sing uh, as they would do that together. And so this is one example of those. And when it says, of Solomon, it may mean that Solomon was the author of it. It may mean that his dad, David, wrote it for him as a young man or as someone who is going to become king. We don't exactly know, but, but that's the, the, the subject, the, the context of what this psalm is and when people originally would sing it. And so let's read these together, verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to essentially shelve the last three verses for the sake of time and really focus in on the first two. But I want you to hear all of it because it has much uh, to teach us, and it was all written together originally. So this is what was recorded by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So we see many important truths in here uh, that, that God would have us to learn and to internalize. But we're going to see, I hope, especially in these first two verses, this call for us to rest physical rest first and foremost but to spiritual rest mental rest as well and i want us to hear the word of god coming to us commanding us encouraging us in that direction to rest but where this these first two verses even start is with work isn't it it's going to get to rest and to sleep in verse two but as this song would start and as the people would start singing it and as god inspired it it starts by talking about work because if you're going to understand sleep if you're going to understand rest for your body and your heart, you need to understand work first. And so I want us to look at this first verse first, and then we'll see what we can learn about rest and about sleep from it. But we're going to see in verse 1, in, in this poetic way, is what I would call the limitations of our work. If you're a note taker, you could write that down. We're going to see the limitations of of our work. There's only so much that we can accomplish. There's only so much that we can do, even if we convince ourselves otherwise. There are limits upon our work. And so the psalmist started by saying, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And we see here first, and this is somewhat a review of last Sunday, if you missed last Sunday with it being Labor Day, you see in these verses that work is a good thing, that, that work is assumed here as something that God's people were going to be doing, that there was going to be people building houses, building homes. Maybe it was even a reference to the temple itself, this house they would be going up to in Jerusalem. So there's this idea that building is good, that it's assumed that God's people are going to be doing it. 
And there's this assumption that there's going to be watchmen. There's going to be people around the city of Jerusalem or other cities that would have these walls in the ancient world. We just learned about them in Nehemiah a lot this summer. Uh, there would be these walls around this city. And it's assumed that there's going to be watchmen that stay awake during the evening that are there to see or any armies coming or any intruders coming towards our gates. And then they could do something about it. And so we see that work is assumed. It's talked about here, not in a negative way, but in a good way. There's, there's this idea you're going to be working. There's, a, there's responsibilities that you have as a human being and that we have together as God's people, things that we need to be working to do. We need to be building. We need to be watching over the city. And there's this like proactive building work that's talked about, right? Like expanding and building and doing. Some of us are more driven that way in our work. But then there's also this, the second part, the watchman part, is this protective work, a defensive work, right? Like that I, I'm going to protect what God's given me. And both of those works are talked about as being good things, advancing, building, establishing new things, but also conserving and protecting what's already been given, what's already been built. And those are talked about in a very positive way. The psalmist could have written it this way. If he was trying to belittle work, he could have said, and trying to make a similar point, he could have said, the Lord will build the house whether you build or not. Or he could have said, the Lord will protect the city whether you stay awake or not. He could have said it that way and, and emphasizing the work of God and essentially saying, your work doesn't matter in the slightest. Like God's going to do what he's going to do and don't worry about your work. God will just, just do it. But that's not what he says. He he's, has this view of work as significant. Like that typically, as God is the one we're going to see here, he's the one ultimately working in every situation and everything, even though he's the ultimate worker, the one behind everything and, and endorsing everything. He usually works through our work, doesn't he? That's, usually, that's how he has set up the world for some reason. As he's wanting to accomplish something, he's wanting to establish something or to protect something, usually he does it through our work, doesn't he? There, there, this building, what did not just magically appear here, like God just dropped it here. People sacrificed money. They sacrificed time. There was men and women who physically came and put these things together and laid this carpet and inserted these lights and electrical switches. Houses don't typically just build themselves, right? And cities typically don't just protect themselves. There's things that were put in place in the ancient world. There's things that we put in place now to protect and to conserve. And so Work is talked about in a very positive way. But the point of verse 1 is most of all for us to see the limits of our work. Not to say it doesn't matter. Not to say uh, you might as well just not work and just don't worry about it. God will take care of everything. We're encouraged to work hard in the word of God. But this verse, Psalm 127.1, would very clearly point out to us our limits in our work saying you can have the best builders of a house and if you want to go metaphorically of building a house you could have the best parents and grandparents and and people that are establishing a home you could have the best people that are working day and night that are staying up late at night teaching kids and caring for them you can have the greatest workers and if god is not establishing the work of their hands it's going to be to no avail 
that you can have the, the best watchmen with the best eyesight and they can have be, have be the most caffeinated people if they even had caffeine back then or the ancient version. They could be the most alert people and you could have people all over the city walls. You could line up a thousand of them around Jerusalem that are watching to try to protect the city. You could put as much work as you want to and if God wants the city to be destroyed and overrun, it will be. And God is wanting to point out to every single one of us in every work that we have, you can work and you ought to work hard, but you can work and work and work and give more time and more energy and more blood and sweat and tears to your work. But you are limited in your work. You cannot guarantee a single thing. If God wants to intervene, if he wants to stifle what you're doing, he can He wants to blow it out of the water bigger than what you planned. He can do that. The Lord establishes what takes place in this world. And there are times where we feel that, don't we? Where we've worked so hard, where we've planned so much. We've put so much time and energy and thought and collaboration with people into something. And then it just kind of unravels. It doesn't come about the way that we thought it would or the way that we were trying to ensure that it would. I've planned stuff when I was the youth pastor here that no kids came to. You've done stuff like that. But we planned this picnic today with dunk tanks and with bouncy houses and stuff like that. And the Lord had to be a high of 63 or 4 or whatever and cloudy and maybe rainy. Like with, there's, in all of our work, there's limitations to what we can do and to what we can guarantee. This is so important for us to remember. And you see it throughout Scripture, don't you? You see, think of the Tower of Babel, if you are familiar with that story from Genesis 11. Back in the early times of the human race, the people of the world were coming together to try to build this tower and accomplish all these great things. And they were doing it. And the Lord just shuts it down. Their most brilliant minds, their strongest workers, they're pulling all human forces together to work, and God just shuts it down. As It's like snapping his fingers. It's nothing to him. He is in control. He can stifle things. And our, our work as human beings is insufficient. It is limited. We are weak people. We cannot guarantee anything in our work. But oftentimes, we have this aversion to rest, an aversion to sleep, where we want to avoid it, where we want to stay away from it, because we overestimate in our minds and hearts what we are capable of. We think, if I just sacrifice some sleep here, if I just stay up, and we're going to see this very clearly in verse 2, if I just stay up some, if I get up way early before everybody else, if I just put more energy into this, if I just put more blood, sweat, and tears into this, I can do it. I can bring it about. I can make this thing grow. I can protect this thing. I can build this. We act as if it all rests upon us. And we are forgetting that the Lord is the one who is establishing all works. He is the one who is working in all things and through all things. And we need to become, as God's people especially, as human beings, period, but as God's people especially, we need to be comfortable with our limitations when it comes to our work. We become comfortable with our limitations. That sounds so anti-American to say just drive and, and improve yourself and work hard and sacrifice and give, 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 sacrifice, stay up late, get up early, be in the office, have your butt in that sea over and over and over again and, and sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Those are good impulses, I think, but we sometimes idolize and, not idolize, we overstate our case. We overplay our hand as if I can just ensure all these good outcomes. 
And so we need to remember in the spirit of the first part of this verse, in our building of things, if the Lord has given you a work, whether in your home or in a workplace or in the community, where you, in a sense, are building things, you're trying to establish new things, you're trying to expand business, you're trying to, to go into new territory, uh, we need to learn to, to not squash our ambition, but to have realistic views of ourselves and say, I am a limited person and I'm going to work hard to try to build this, to establish this. I'm going to try to think and be proactive and imagine and, and do all the planning and hard work that I can. But I cannot, you cannot, we cannot guarantee anything. We can't. If you are in education right now, you're a student right now, you are trying, in a sense, to build your life, aren't you? You're trying to get a degree. You're trying to get a job, eventually a certain uh, standard of living. You are trying to construct a life for yourself and build this, this life that you want to enjoy. But unless the Lord is building that, unless he is behind that and wanting that, you are striving in vain. But it could all be taken away from you. In our relationships, sometimes we're trying to build things and establish new relationships and, and manufacture certain relationships at times as if it all just depends on me. As if I want and desire to be married and the desire of wife that it all is on me to, to be, uh, be a good communicator with women and to find the right lady and to just work hard enough and be diligent enough in my work and pray hard enough and I can find a wife or vice versa with a husband. There's so many things. That it's like that with friendships as well. We try to build these things, manufacture these things amongst us as humans. And the Lord would say, unless I'm establishing that, it's not going to happen. Like, stop believing the lie that it all rests upon you. As if, if you just work hard enough, you can guarantee it. And some of us, if we have more of a protecting work, the second half of verse 1 would speak to us. God's given us uh, responsibilities that we are shielding, we're protecting, we're conserving things. We're trying to, to keep harm from happening. Those of us who are either in the healthcare profession or those of us who are physically sick right now or are afraid of being physically sick and we want to protect our health. It is good to work hard to try to be healthy to eat well, to, to get checkups, to exercise regularly, to take medicines that are helpful for you. But you cannot guarantee the length of your life. You can't guarantee the absence of sickness. I look around this room and I know some people who are very healthy and sickness comes upon them or their loved ones. And you can't just always pray that away or prevent that away by your hard work and your diligence to have a good diet and exercise. Unless the Lord watches over your body, you are watching over it in vain. And our parenting, I, I remember this, and still at times as a dad, I, and Stephanie could attest this, I can be overprotective as a parent. I hate going to playgrounds with my kids because I'm always afraid they're going to just jump off that top part and just plummet and break a leg or something. I, I get paranoid, and I have this false view, and it's been since my kids were little, like when they're awake in their room at night, and I'm afraid as a young parent that they're going to stop breathing, I think that if my eyes are on them, they're going to keep breathing. Or if my hand's on their chest, it's going to keep rising and falling. And that is a lie. Like, I am doing nothing to keep them alive. Like, unless the Lord watches over the life of my children, I'm watching over them in vain. And we try to secure so much and guarantee so much security for ourselves by our work. Our physical safety is not guaranteed by having strong muscles or strong security systems. Our, our financial security is not guaranteed by us stockpiling money in retirement funds. 
Uh, our national security, as we learned on September 11th, many years ago, it's not guaranteed by having a massive military. Like, we can work, and we ought to work to try to build and to try to protect, to try to establish and try to shield. But if the Lord is not behind those things, enabling those things, it is in vain. And we need to acknowledge our limitations as human beings. That we can not just work hard enough to guarantee anything. And that's why the psalmist, I think, starts here is trying to teach us to acknowledge our limitations in our work because it's going to segue into the second verse, which is very explicitly about our rest, about our sleep. And these have everything to do with one another because when we realize our limitations in our work, the limitations of our strength, the limitations of our abilities, it's going to inform the way that we sleep. It's going to inform the, the way that we rest the way that we think about it. We should be, we learned this last Sunday, and I would echo this, we should be the hardest workers as God's people. But I would say to you, we should also be the soundest sleepers. Like we should be the people who are able to put our head down on our pillow at the end of the night, or if you work third shift uh, early in the morning, uh, that we can put our heads down on the pillow and be the soundest sleepers among all of humanity. And you see that here in verse 2. Verse 2, the author says that it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For, listen to this, he gives to his beloved sleep. And we see, if we saw in verse 1 the limitations of our work, we see here in verse 2 the gift of our sleep. The gift of our sleep. The, the psalmist says he, talking about God, gives sleep. It is a gift of God that he gives to us. And sleep, I've thought about this a lot this week, that sleep is such a strange thing. If you stop, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, pause to think about it before, but about a third of our day, a third of our existence, and it's more when we're kids, like we are literally laid flat. Our brains, at least as we're aware of, are almost all shut off. Like we're not physically moving. Like that is strange. Like, why did God make us like that? Like, why didn't God just make us as these people who could just be awake all the time and who who just live and go through our day, light and dark, or maybe light all the time? But God made us from the beginning to sleep. It is a gift. You see it back in the Garden of Eden. Like, if you go back, and some of you are familiar, most of you are probably familiar with this story. You go back to Genesis 2. This is before sin even entered into the world before the world became the messed up place that it is now. Do you remember how God made Eve? Like in Genesis chapter 2? He could have like just said, hey, Adam, watch this. And like said, hey, like, and then uh, like however he made Eve like take the rib, he could have like reached right into Adam while he was standing there taking his rib. He could have done whatever he wanted. But how did he make her? It says that he had a deep sleep fall upon Adam. And he took the rib from him and created, fashioned the woman and brought her and presented her to him. And so we know just even from that detail, sleep existed before sin. And there was day and night, right, before sin. There was this rhythm that God was going to have in our lives as human beings where we would wake and sleep. Where we had that capacity and even that need to sleep, And it's become far more challenging and even more important, I think, for us to sleep since sin entered the world. But it has always been a good gift of God. Even whether we reject it or not, it's been a good gift of God. There's 
some fascinating research that's being done right now about in neuroscience about the benefits of sleep. If you ever want to just go down a rabbit hole of the internet that is very interesting, look up that, like the benefits of sleep on your brain and on your body. But we all know this just from our own experience, right? Without Googling that, without reading anything, we know that sleep has positive benefit, that it's a gift to us, right? Sleep gives us restored energy, typically. Uh, it, It improves our temperament and our mood, right? Sometimes we go to sleep crabby and we wake up happy. Uh, Not always, sometimes the opposite, but in general, it improves our temperament and mood. It helps us with our health to fight off sickness. It improves our memory and our ability to learn. Uh, There are so many benefits to sleep. It is a gift that God has given to us, that, that it's for our good, and that improves our life, improves our functioning in so many ways. Work is a, or excuse me, sleep is a gift to us in that it prepares us to work. Sometimes we get that the opposite way around, but we rest in order to work. We sleep and have this restorative time to be able to have energy to serve people and to be able to show love to others. So our sleep prepares us to be better workers. And then think about this, sleep every day. I think this is a gift of God and a part of why he gives his beloved sleep is that every day as you lay down your head at night, it is a forced vulnerability to you. Like when you lay down your head and you fall asleep, we have this illusion of safety and security because we have locked doors on our dorm room or security systems on our house. Uh, we have this false illusion of safety and security. But read some of the Psalms early on, and David would talk about when he was laying down his head to sleep, he was terrified that he wasn't going to wake up. Because he's having to lay there every day, either out in the open or in a cave or somewhere, maybe trying to shield himself, but almost lifeless, motionless, controlless for hours on end. And his enemies could have come, they could have harmed him, they could have captured him. But every day still as human beings, we have to take hours, how many you do is up to you to some degree, but hours where we are laying there vulnerable where we have no ability to protect ourselves. We have no ability to just to, to guard ourselves, to, to defend ourselves from intruders. And we have to do this. This isn't avoidable. The world record for sleeplessness is something like seven or eight days. And those people were probably going insane by the end of that. We have to sleep. And it's this forced vulnerability for us as human beings. And uh, the last way that this is a gift to us is that every day as we sleep i don't know if you've thought about this before but i think about this often when i lay my head down to sleep every day as you go to sleep as you close your eyes and then you wake up again that is a picture for you of someday what is going to happen in death and resurrection and it happens to you every day like you your body in a sense shut down shuts down you close your eyes life in a sense stops and you are weak and powerless, and you are hoping and praying that you come awake again. And it's this picture that God has embedded into our life and into our existence that we are small, that we are weak, that life is going to end, but that someday he is going to raise us back up. And it is a gift of God. And as a gift, as God gives us, God gives us many gifts, right? As human beings and as his people, when God gives us a gift, 
we can either respond to it, and this is not the point of this passage, but one way we can respond to a gift that God gives us is by indulging in it, by making it an idol, right? That, that this thing, I overstate it, I overenjoy it, and there are many passages in the Word of God. Uh, you go to the book of Proverbs alone, and there's several that would address us if that's our tendency as, as a person, to take the gift that God has given to me of sleep, of physical rest, and to say, I'm going to indulge on that. I'm sleeping like 13 hours a day, 14 hours a day. I'm taking naps in the remaining part of the day. And we are cautioned over and over again in the word of God to, to fight against laziness and sloth, to not idolize sleep, to not avoid work. But what this passage is addressing, and what I think as Americans we need to be addressed on typically, is the opposite response. When there's this gift that God has given to us of sleep, that has all these benefits, and he's embedded it into our existence. Our temptation is not to indulge in it, but to neglect it. To act as if it's not a gift to me, it's a hindrance to me. It's something that I need to keep as small a part of my day as possible, just the bare minimum to to get on with life, and I want to use the rest of my day to work and to to be entertained and to be with people. And we, We are tempted to neglect sleep. We're tempted to walk away from it, to diminish it in our life. And that's why in verse 2, this is even an ancient temptation and something that they would give in. The start of verse 2, the psalmist is describing this reality that many of us give into, where he talks about people who rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. What humans were doing then and what humans do now, maybe many of us do, what I do at times, is that we think that we can burn it on both ends. We think, man, I don't need to sleep. I can just stay up later than everybody else and get more done, get more accomplished once everybody else's heads are on their pillow. And I can just then get up before everybody else, wake up before everybody else, and get some extra hours in and time in before everybody else. And I can work more. I can get more done. I can do more things. I can ensure more outcomes. And as if we are trying to steal time. We're trying to steal from our sleep that God says we need, that he made us to need. And in our day and age, we have capacities that they wouldn't have had in Solomon's day where we have alarm clocks and we have caffeine and we have uh, like systems that we can put into place to make us wake up or to to prop up ourselves to stay awake uh, late into the night. We have lights, for example, uh, things, air conditioning, things like this that help us to press against sleep as if it's something to be avoided and to just work, work, work. And a lot of why we do that isn't, isn't noble. It seems noble. It seems godly to say, I don't need sleep. I can sleep when I die. Like to say stuff like that seems noble. Like I'm selfless. I'm going to, I'm a go-getter. I'm a hard worker. I'm willing to sacrifice myself. But a lot of that is driven by sin. He says you are eating the bread of anxious toil. Like you are craving for more. You're trying to ensure more for yourself. You're trying to ensure certain outcomes. And you are anxious as you do it. You're thinking that it all rests upon you and that you need to just throw more time and energy. And Solomon would call you a fool. Solomon would not call that noble. He would not call that commendable. He would say, you are eating the bread of anxious toil. And we have to remember as God's people, I've thought about this some this week, that God works while we sleep, doesn't he? 
God, it, it does not rest upon you. Nothing rests upon you. God works while you are, are dead, while you are asleep. God works without us. He can do what he wants. Our work is important, but God works while we sleep. He made Eve when Adam was asleep, right? Adam could have never created Eve. Like, but God had him sleep and say, watch what I can do. And he shows him the result of it. Look what I did while you did nothing, while you just laid there. And when God established the most, probably the most important covenant in the Bible before the covenant of Christ with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, read it. It says he made a deep sleep fall upon him while he did it. You read in Exodus 16 when, when God's people had become an entire nation and they needed food and they had no way to secure it themselves. God had them all go to sleep at night. Then every morning there would be food on the ground they would call manna and god would give it while they slept and god does this over and over and over again you flip back to psalm 121 a few psalms before this in verse 4 and the psalmist wrote that he who keeps israel god will neither slumber nor sleep he who keeps israel will neither slumber nor sleep when you put your head down on the pillow work doesn't stop yours does but god's does not and when you realize your limitations and you realize, man, it is, it is in vain that I am trying to do this. There's no conditional statement on that. Did you note that? In the first verse, there's these conditional statements like, if God's not building the house, then you're laboring in vain. If God's not watching over the city, you're watching over it in vain. There's no conditions in verse 2. He says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil. And you think it's going to gain you so much. You think it's going to make you sharper and get more done and ensure more things for you, for your family, for your business. But it is not. It is in vain. It is like a credit card. I read one author wrote that cheating our sleep is like maxing out our credit cards. There's a benefit now, at least it feels like it, but the bill always comes due in the form of decreased health and mental ability. And that is true. Like, we, we can try to prop ourselves up and sleep less and sleep less, but it will catch up with us, and it has diminishing returns. It is in vain. Our lifespans go down when we sleep less. Our energy goes down when we sleep less. Our effectiveness goes down when we sleep less. It is in vain when we try to do this and when we press back against our sleep. So I would encourage us as God's people to be prioritizing daily sleep. Close the book that you're reading when it's getting late into the evening. Shut off the computer that you're playing. Tell the kids who are playing video games in your room they need to get out of your room. Uh, Tell uh, your kids that they need to go to bed if they stay up later than you. And turn off the TV and power down your phone and go to sleep. Stop denying that you're limited. Stop trying to act as if the world spins because you stay up late. And then certain outcomes are guaranteed because you get up early. You are fooling yourself. We need to not belittle or avoid rest. Jesus Christ slept every day. There was a few times he stayed up all night to pray when he was selecting his disciples, for example, things like that. But he would sleep. He would rest. He was asleep on a boat in a storm. Like he, that's how much he enjoyed rest and benefited from it and knew he needed it. And he's the son of God. 
Like, who are we to act like we need to, to burn it at both ends and as if we need to, to sleep less when our Savior modeled it for us? We need to not wait on vacations to be our time to rest. God made us to need rest every day. Like, we tend to think in seasons. Like, I'm just going to press hard for several weeks or several months or several years, and at the end of that, I'm going to finally be able to rest. And that is a myth, and that is a denial of how God made us that every day we need sleep. Every day we need rest. I want to end by pointing out one thing, and then we'll, we'll sing another song. But I want to point you to the phrase in verse 2, where the psalmist ends verse 2 by saying that, he doesn't just say, for he gives sleep. He says, he gives to his beloved sleep. And in talking about this subject of sleep or, or rest as a broader category, I don't want to end without pointing us to the reality that why God made us with this need for physical sleep and physical rest, I think at least in part, is to point us to this reality that we know is true in our hearts and souls, that we need rest for our souls. That we need rest from our striving and our working to try to please God. If I just need to do more for Him and prove myself to Him, and I need to show my love for Him so He sees it, and there's no mistaking it, I need to prove and get this record earned up with God, and I, I can't rest, I can't stop, I can't make mistakes. And we, we put all this pressure on ourselves but our need for physical sleep is to point us to our need for spiritual rest our need for spiritual rest can come jesus himself the son of god said this and this is what our kids if they're in the teaching time are learning about today the four-year-olds and up he said this and you're probably familiar with this jesus said this come to me all who are all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus was not talking about, I'll give you a good nap, and I'll give you a good night's sleep. He was saying, if you labor and are heavy laden, trying to work for God and prove stuff and gain things and, and earn things, as if you could even do that, he says, come to me, and I will give you rest for your soul. Like, I will show you that you don't need to keep striving to gain and try to prove something to God. I will give you rest. And that's why I pointed out this, this phrase here where the psalmist says, He gives to his beloved sleep. There's a special kind of sleep, a special kind of rest that God gives to his people. That is beyond physical rest. That's beyond just the benefits of a nap. That's beyond just the, the eight hours that, that are nice at the end of a day to sleep. He can give you rest for your soul that will last for eternity that you can find in no other place but in Jesus Christ. And thinking about lullabies, I started by talking about, have you ever noticed that lullabies, and this is actually true across cultures, I found out this week, lullabies sometimes have really dark lyrics to them. I mean, just think of, I mean, the most common one I could think of was Rockabye Baby. Have you ever thought about that song? Weird. Like a, a cradle in the treetops? First, that's strange. But then it talks about when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby, cradle and all. Like, why do we sing that to our kids? Uh, they don't know what we're singing, probably is why. But... The point is this, and I'll connect it here. There's, some, there's darkness in a lot of cultures in the lullabies that they sing to their kids to get them to rest. 
There's these stories of monsters, of forests, uh, things like that, dragons, things like that. They sing to their kids, and there are these dark parts of these songs that they're communicating to their kids to get them to rest. And the same is true as we think of the lullaby of the Lord to us, as he's calling us to rest our souls. There's a dark part to the song. There's a dark part to the story that he would sing to us, and it involves a cross. It involves the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came into our world, and he slept like us, he lived like us, but he did it perfectly. But at the end of his life, outside this very city that these people would be singing at, or going towards as they would sing, right outside that city, outside these very walls that they're imagining as they sing this, Jesus was laid upon a cross, and he was put to death. And there was blood, there was swords, there was, there was agony, there was weeping. And he was put to death for our sins. He was put to death for our faults, our wrongdoings against God. He was laid upon the cross and died and suffered in our place. He took the punishment that should be coming to you, that should be coming to me. He took it all upon himself, and he was laid down to sleep in death, suffering so that we might be forgiven, and so that we might know that we are beloved by God. That we are loved by him so much that he sent Christ to die for us and to pay that penalty for us. And God raised him from the dead on the, sun, on the Sunday morning after that. He brought him back to life. He, he was laid down asleep in death. And God raised him back to life, never to die again. And he is alive and well in heaven. And he offers to us, to you, if you've never received it, he offers to you forgiveness. And rest for your soul to say, I did what you could not do. Like, I died for you. I paid the penalty for your sins. I, I lived a perfect life that can count to you now. Stop trying to earn it. Like, stop trying to burn it at both ends with God as if you just accumulate some record with him that he's going to look at and be impressed by. You can't. Jesus would say, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. The work's been done. And it's been done by me, not by you. And there's, so there's this special rest of our soul that we can find. He gives us forgiveness. He can give us eternal life. And we have this special rest as his beloved, as his people who have come to him through faith in his son. And as people who are recipients of that rest, that that rest of our soul, that I don't have to prove anything to God. I don't have to demonstrate anything to him. We have rest for our soul, and that ought to inform how we rest our bodies as well. That we don't feel like all is up to me, as if everything rests upon me, but I am a, a work, my work flows out of the work that Christ already did for me. Because I'm at rest with him, and I want to work hard, but not to gain, not to prove, not to demonstrate anything to him. He already has made me his beloved. And so that ought to inform how we rest. We ought to be able to put our he heads on our pillows, sound asleep at night, confident that if I die before I wake, that whole uh, song that and poem that we say, that if we do die, that we, our eyes will be open and we will be with him. And that someday, as, as we are laid down in death into a tomb, that someday he's going to wake us up and our bodies are going to be given back to us to never die again and never sleep again, I even think, as well. 